This is Dee Dee Keel, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaming. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaming as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi, I'm Pleasant Gaiman, and welcome to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. As the devil himself apparently once said via the Rolling Stones, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a rock and roll witch from Hollywood, California. My obsession with music and the occult started at the age of 12 and is still going strong. During the 70s, I was one of the first punks in Los Angeles. I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go and had a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to writing a rock and roll gossip column in the LA Weekly, which in turn led me to writing for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s through the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've been a professional dancer who's toured around the globe teaching and performing, and you've probably seen me dancing in a number of music videos, feature films, and documentaries. I'm also an actor with several film credits. Find out more about me at PleasantGaiman.com. I'm really excited to be a part of the Pantheon podcast network of rock and roll shows. Everyone at Pantheon tells spectacular stories about the music we love so much, each one with a different twist. Find them all at PantheonPodcast.com, as well as on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio.com, Pandora, hell, I just had to say that, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what we're doing here, Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend, or I'll put a spell on you. Kidding. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to The Devil's Music. Today my guest is the illustrious, multi-talented, amazing goddess of rock and roll, Jennifer Finch of Seven and many other bands. You may not know that she's an incredibly accomplished photographer. She's been taking photos since she was a little tot. She's um. <laughs> <laughs> there, she's <laughs> listening to me doing this intro now, giggling. <laughs> she, she, we've known each other since the 80s. Um, 
She's also into all sorts of wild witchy stuff and science and art. And she's just an all around amazing woman. So here Hello. we go with Jennifer. Hi. Hi. I'm actually gonna put headphones on right now. So I'm not, as most times, I'm not entirely prepared. However, I'm so excited to be here. How are you doing? Happy Lunar New Year. Happy Lunar New Year to you too. Happy almost the end of Mercury retrograde. Happy um, happy Year of the Ox. Happy yes. almost Pisces season. <laughs> yes, yes, it all comes together. We're so lucky to be so multicultural. Yes, and, and multidimensional in more oh, ways than one. <laughs> For sure. How can I help you today, Pleasant? <laughs> can How you get my bags under my eyes? No. <laughs> you have reached punk rock tech support. Have you tried rebooting? <laughs> <laughs> have you tried rebooting your punk rock aesthetic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what um, year is I it? Remember, do you remember the first time that we actually met? Absolutely. What happened? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember the first time I met. I just, I just remember knowing you a lot from the scene. Like, I don't yeah. know if we saw each other at clubs or. Well, I definitely, I mean, I have to say I had an awareness because you were a public figure. Like you actually had press that was surrounded you. And I, so I knew of you, you certainly had mythology surrounding you. Um, it was probably at a time, maybe early Cathay de Grand. Yeah. You know, I, I started going to shows. I mean, I went to shows here and there through the eighties, like, you know, the whiskey, a go-go kind of shows like dead boys at the whiskey um, and definitely Starwood. And I, but I don't have a recollection of you at the Starwood specifically. Um, but I went to more hardcore shows. I was part of the scene that came in on Tuesday nights and hung out in the parking lot and was part of a younger scene that ruined punk Hollywood punk rock. But I think <laughs> that I actually would have met you and I'll just do some name dropping. Um, I was friends with uh, Mika Safarian, who was friends with Ann Dahl, who was friends with Linda Nichols. They all lived above the whiskey. So I would go stay with them in Hollywood. I'd run away from home and stay with them for weeks and run around. And I'm sure that was kind of part of that time. Were you a bartender at Cafe or the promoter? I was, or I, was the, I was the booker. I was the bartender. I was the person that had to, um, because I lived closest to it. I had a key to it because they would, people would always pass out in the booths before, um, you know, at last call and not get found out. And then they'd start calling the owner on the landline or calling anyone they knew going, do you know anyone that has a key to Cafe de Grand? Oh my gosh. It was dark and muddled in there for sure. Especially the downstairs. I don't even, so I was a minor, so I actually couldn't go to the upstairs. I was restricted to the downstairs. So that feeling of descending that staircase and the smell and that weird cottage cheese suspended ceiling and all of those booths that were over to the right and the left. Yeah, that's where that those are the booths that people passed out in on a regular basis. But and you know why people got looked over so many times at last call, like even if they were passed out on the floor or in a booth, because El Duce was like the the janitor. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> And I'm sure every time he, um, I'm sure every time that he was like, you know, cleaning up glasses, he was also finishing what was in them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
well, I, I, I'm going to tell you one thing that like before we were, when we were like totally on each other's radars and kind of knew each other, but before we were really good friends, um, when L7 first came onto the scene and was playing and stuff, I remember seeing you guys and I loved you. But also whenever the, the Screaming Sirens, my band was on the road, um, the, you know, the whole look of the band and everything was like, my aesthetic you know i wanted us to look like saloon girls meet, met like a biker gang you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but we'd be sitting there all so fucking hungover in somewhere like arkansas or you know like the, the backwoods of louisiana like um trying to get ready for a gig in humidity in a van that wasn't air conditioned and there'd be hairspray all over the van and you know i'd be putting on like five different colors of eyeshadow and everyone would have on 80 hundred belts and I used to always whine, why can't we just be like L7? Like, why Like why can't we just roll onto stage in like flannels and like cutoffs and like no makeup? Why are we doing this? And everyone's like, you're the one that started this. Why yeah, you were the one that did it. You, Yeah, I mean, clearly we had the vision for the road life. Yeah. We knew what was going to happen. We knew the athletic aspect of it. <laughs> oh my god so our our touring uniform though around that point um even if there was no makeup involved in this it was always a t-shirt of the band that we had just played with mm -hmm. and, and like um men's boxer shorts or in the winter it was like men's um long johns you know but mm -hmm. it was always like worn under our petticoats <laughs> we looked like we looked like fucking rodeo clowns i know the feeling I wouldn't agree with you, but I know the feeling. <laughs> you know, one show that um, comes to mind that I know that we definitely had met yet was the Modifiers and Gun Club at the Cafe de Grand because we went to your house afterwards because Dave Ketching, it was the first night that Dave Ketching was in town. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he talks about, okay, so Dave Catching, in case you guys don't know, I'm sure most of you do, but um, Dave Catching has been in zillions of bands, but he came out to LA with his band, The Modifiers from Memphis, Tennessee. They just moved out there. Dave has been in, um, in oh God, I'm blanking out. I'm such an old Queens lady. of the Stone Age. Yes, Queens of the Stone Age, Eagles of Death Metal, Lords of Mojave or Mojave Lords. He's, he was in Tex and the Horseheads. He's been in like so many bands. He even had a, a one night band called Guns and Rosie Greer. <laughs> <laughs> and he was in my bands, the Ringling Sisters and Honk Up Your Horny. But so on this night, when, um, when you came to Disgraceland, the reason the modifiers were there was because their singer Milford got, um, he got a blowjob in an alley near Cafe de Grand and the hooker mugged him. And he, what? Yes. <laughs> I, have, I have photographs of him from after the show. Oh my God. Yeah, anyway, so I, I was like, I can't even remember what I was high on, but it was like multiple things. And I told, I told Dave, he was like, do you know anywhere we can stay? And I was like, you can come and stay at my house. And then he, he was looking at me and Iris. And later on, he told me he thought that this was like, you know, God smiling on the modifiers because there was two beautiful girls saying come over to my house, but he didn't realize that like, you know, half of the LA punk scene would also be there. But I dragged Milford <laughs> into, a, um, into I think it was, it was either my room or Iris's room. And I was like cleaning like the head cut and stuff, but I was so high, I was looking at him and mumbling, 
you look like a Confederate soldier and I feel like a nurse in the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, they wound up staying there, but that was their first night in Hollywood playing at Cafe de Grand and getting mugged by a hooker. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. But so, so you came to Disgrace Land. So tell me, was that, that was like the first time? Yeah, I don't really have a lot of that many solid memories. Like, I mean, I was, I was very young and I remember even at, back then I was sort of, I mean, you know, I was 14. So I was getting, a, uh, you know, some lectures from people about not hanging out in Hollywood at certain houses. <laughs> which only only made me want to go more of course but I mean it was good you know and this is a question I have for you and maybe we should edit this out I don't know when you're retelling your stories because you were quite young when you started going to shows right yeah. you were a minor yeah. and a lot of our stories I don't think about it a lot but I'll tell stories about escapades with people that maybe weren't minors that were older so I always wonder about their privacy or how you handle it because do you ever have issues with that or like do people ever request that you don't talk about them because they feel either guilt or reimagine what it should have looked like or um on like when I'm writing about it a lot of times I'll ask people or, I'll, or sometimes I'll just tell them you're in this story or like um and then some, a lot of times I'll say like, you're in this story and it's gonna be in my book or in John Doe and Tom DeSavio's books or something. And I'll, I'll read them the part and I'll say like, is there anything you wanna change? And right. usually like almost every time everyone has said, no, just print it just like that. And if, I, if it's someone that I can't get in touch with, I'll allude to who it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but um, also, I just think nowadays it's like the fucking statute of limitations. I mean, I'm just about to turn 62. Most of this shit happened more than 45 years ago. Right. You know, like when I was a minor, maybe I, my math is bad. Maybe it's longer than 45 years ago. But, um, you know, also, <laughs> also people these days, I think that um, they don't realize like they'll, they'll look at stuff. I'm just using Roman Polanski as um, an example because this was, you know, nothing to do with me or anything, but they'll, they'll look at stuff from those days and they'll be horrified because there was a minor involved with an adult. And it wasn't even always like a male adult and a female minor, but it's, it's because that was how it was back then. It really was. And in many cases, most of, um, you know, in many cases, there there was consent on both sides. There was no coercion. You know, if we're talking about a sexual situation or a controlled substance situation, and I think people um, that are much younger do not understand that in the slightest. It was a, it was an extremely different world, and most of the people that were like hanging out in Hollywood, like you or I, I mean, we didn't want to be around people our own age that weren't into stuff that we were or maybe you know or they just didn't understand it I think it was a, a like an entirely different place to be like emotionally and mentally if you were going to Hollywood on a, on a regular basis I mean that that's kind of my my thoughts about it yeah those my thoughts as well but often like I'll sit and I'll tell stories right and mm -hmm. people will come back and say you know I I look at that differently now you know, I look at those parties differently. Like I was 
23 and you were 16, like that's a big difference. And not just sexual, just hanging out, you know, influential, lifestyle influential. No, I agree with that too, because I remember meeting people that were like 21 or 22 and thinking they were absolutely amazing. But at the, at, at concurrently at that same moment, I would be like, wow, that person's old. <laughs> or, no, or like, I know, right? Yeah. But I mean, then there was, there was even people that were older all the time hanging out. And this is like nothing that has to do with like, you know, maybe even sex and drugs, but there was people in, in the punk rock scene that, that, you know, I've said this a million times. They came from like the East village, um, Warhol scene and people that had lived through hate Ashbury and people mm-hmm. in some cases people that had lived through like the beats in the 50s you know it's because it was such such an interesting amazing scene and people that had been involved in various other quote quote countercultures were drawn to it because those were the people that had like just cool and advanced crazy like you know alternative quote quote stuff on their radars all the time they they could they knew where the most interesting situations were going to happen that's kind of what i think yeah absolutely and i think there was a lot of communication between anyone who was a minor over anyone that was dangerous like i think we had a lot more communication over that back then oh i think so too but there and also for anyone that's listening in the time periods that we're talking about it was still considered perfectly normal to hitchhike Right. <laughs> if you were like a young teenage girl, I mean, I'm sure there was heinous things that happened um, in every state or every country, but I mean, this was a very different universe. And so as um, yeah. I went to as Europe, your elders, Jennifer and I are processing this right, right on the air for you. <laughs> no, it's so crazy because like, uh, you know, I went to Europe, like, I, I don't know if you remember, but in the 80s, in the, in the scene, all of a sudden there was just, well, there was always the you know, Anglophile kind of obsession of punk rock, but even more so like in the eighties with the new romantic and like everything that was going on in the UK, like it was goals to get over to England, right? Or to get oh, over yeah. to Europe. And I went at 17 by myself, got oh, on yeah. the plane, you know, was empowered by, you know, my, the adults in my life to go be a tourist and go have experiences. And um, kids today. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. I mean, that's what I did, you know, and then going on European tours, you know, like with just sort of, you know, going, going on them. You, you did actual tours in Europe. My, my band didn't tour Europe. We toured like all over North America and stuff, but I would go with other bands or meet them, you know, because like my, my boyfriend and husband during that time was a sound man. Um, but I would just, uh, I, I could remember um, at one point working um, for the Miracle Workers on part of their tour. And the Miracle Workers, for anyone listening, was in such an incredible psychedelic band from L.A. Um, but so I, I'd be thinking, I'd be like standing at like, you know, Milkweg in, in Amsterdam or somewhere in Germany or something, selling T-shirts and like, six different currencies because there was no European Union and and you know be talking to people and giving change and then thinking wow I flunked math and I'm making like change in like guilders and Deutschmarks and you know francs and shit. yeah definitely just vagabonding around Europe in the 80s was so good yep and just getting 
just that all the beer. I mean, it was so different. Do you remember like just alcohol? Everything was different. Food was different. There was no coffee here back then. We had to go to no, Europe. There was no coffee. coffee there. And, and then people like in the middle of a town in a beautiful lake, all, all jumping off the bridges or going diving into the water completely naked, like in the summer and just nobody it was just normal, you know, and, and naked television commercials. I remember. Yep. Yep. Naked <laughs> alcohol underage. I can't imagine a better life to bring culture to bring back and coffee. Yeah. And, and dogs and cats laying on the bar or laying on the tables yep. of a restaurant. Like I used to pick where, wherever I was eating in different countries, just like by the looks of the, the animals that were like, you know, owned the bar. <laughs> exactly. Let's take a little break right now, and then we will come right back. Jennifer Seven, I almost called you. Let me have some more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, but you want to talk about some um, want to tell me about one or two of your um greatest or sickest like on the road highlights in the eighties, like with the L Seven or when L Seven, we did our first national tour with bad religion we were one of the first bands on epitaph records which is brett gerwitz and bad religions label uh we went out with them in 89 um there were adventures every night however it wasn't until we got on sub pop and we got this big big like airporter van which by the way you can't tour in an airporter because it's just meant to do like these little short distances yeah, so yeah. every you know, every 20 hours, there would be a problem with it. And it would be all of us, you know, getting out in the middle of Montana. There was no AAA, no cell phones, no nothing. <clears throat> and the, what you had to do was really rely on someone passing by. And, you know, and yeah, we were in like, you know, pajamas that were cut off, you know, t-shirts. And we just it's like you either dress normal or you were a hooker that's all there was in like 1989 1990 you know and we would be hitchhiking you know you'd have to hitchhike to a gas station hope that they had a flatbed or whatever they needed to tow or bring back out but there was one night we were all so we had been drinking all day in the van we were in wyoming the sun was going down and we're like, okay, we have to do this again. We were filing out, kind of electing who, like, because usually we elected Susie to hitchhike because she was blonde. We knew she could just like get picked up faster. Susie Gardner from L7. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was getting darker. The barometric pressure was changing. You could feel it. And the wolves started to howl. And oh my God. <laughs> so, and we couldn't be in the actual van 
because we started to smell gas. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a bunch like of a like horror movie right now. Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like just creating little bonfires outside of the bus to huddle around with torches to hope that we could get somebody local to come like shepherd, you know, like <laughs> shepherd us all back in their vehicles. And, you know, at that time, people were really kind in that sense. You know, I mean, it got really, it could get pretty hectic, but I don't know if you remember, like in the general population, if you were female, they were usually pretty kind. If you were male, they had different expectations for you. Like, why are you letting your van break down? Like guys yeah, kind of yeah. had it a little bit rougher, but. Yeah, we had um, one time the sirens van, well, actually twice. This was like a Groundhog Day type of synchronicity. We were we were driving through Arizona, you know, in the middle of the summer in a, in a van that was not air conditioned. And it was like, you know, 117 outside or something. And our van started making crazy sounds and then it started like coughing and we saw this like exit that, you know, that wasn't really marked. It was a road. So we just went down it and a lot of it was downhill. So we coasted into it. Oh, wait, I have to preface this. Someone had thrown a book into our van. My friend Steve Heck in Oakland had thrown a bunch of stuff into our van to keep us occupied as we left Oakland for the rest of the tour. And one and this book was called Hot Truck Stop. And it was like, you know, a 60s porn book. So we were all reading it and every and we'd be sitting there playing like the sound of music, which is our favorite thing to listen to in the van, unless it was Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison. These were the eight tracks we had in our van. Um, so every so often someone would turn down like the music and make some somebody else read passages from Hot Truck Stop. Anyway. We were breaking down in Arizona and we just took this fucking like little exit and turned off the engine and just let it coast. And then all of a sudden we started seeing all these cement mixers. And then there was all these like really like buff, hot guys in like coveralls or <clears throat> coveralls with like the top down so you could see their bare chests. And they and they all were like looking at a van rolling down this thing, like sort of in confusion, like who's this in a, in a Winnie wagon, you know? And then we started getting out and we all still had on like fishnets and garters and petticoats or like men's boxer shorts and like cut off t-shirts. And they all just stopped. Like it was a scene in a movie, like where the freeze frame and their mouths were just open. And in, everyone in the van started screaming, hot truck stop. Oh my God, hot truck stop. <laughs> They were like, you know, holding out their hands like, lady, can I help you down from your broken down wreck? You know what I mean? I mean, not saying that, but then, then they started, we're like, we don't know what's wrong with our van. And they were like rolling under it on dollies and had the hood open. And I mean, if, if that, that, that would have been in the days of right now where you can record shit on your camera, we all would have had hours of footage, you know? I mean, it was, it was unfucking believable. Yeah, <laughs> then, for sure. And then like, going like returning from that same tour somehow our van started breaking down at the same point and someone said i think we're near the hot truck stop and we were so we rolled down there and then that next time when we rolled in there like they were running out screaming and cheering like like god had smiled on them <laughs> we had a similar experience where somebody gave us copies of an early version of bear magazine which was uh, a oh, subgenre in San Francisco of, I mean, it's still around, right? I mean, like oh, sort yeah. of like 
Perryman. And it wasn't hardcore. It was just like, I think there were some penises and buttholes, which at the time was considered like not a body part, but actually porn. So yeah. we would, you know, be listening to trucker music, looking through Bear <laughs> Magazine, like taking these like pinup pictures and like putting them on the van wall. And, um, you know, and then we got to Canada where they <laughs> searched the van for drugs and found six copies of bear magazine with cut out, like cut out do you know what i mean like pictures cut out and it's and like you're just you're four women just standing there like being busted for transporting porn into canada what do we do and who's gonna believe this oh my god the the canadian the canadian border took one look at look at a, a roadie who was um john lee do you remember johnny lee and he had on he had on long uh, um okay so for anyone listening johnny lee was was like he roadied for a lot of people in the la scene and he was legendary he talked like he talked like um sean penn in fast times at ridgemont high only slower and he and was he tall he was really tall and lanky and he, he looked like he'd be in Leonard Skinner or something in a great way. And, um, and he had, you know, but so he, he looked like a, a sort of a hippie, but he also always had on black nail polish. And like when he was traveling with us, he wore as much, as much eye makeup as we did because we mandated it that everyone had to have lipstick and eye makeup and nail polish. He stopped at lipstick, but he confused a lot of truckers. But so, the border guard in Canada looked at him, took one look at him and said, he's a criminal. He didn't even say like, let me check your record. He just, it was just like, he's a criminal. And we got detained for ages just because of the way he looked, you know? I mean, that's definitely like, I, a very significant change in culture is that you can't look at people these days and be able to tell, like, you can't just look at someone with a tattoo on their face and assume they're a criminal, where back then the chances were much higher that you could judge a book by its cover. Yeah, totally. Which is, you know. I mean, back then, if someone had a facial tattoo, even us or even the most hardcore people were like, whoa, because tattoos weren't even, you know, like in the 80s, people were just beginning to get tattoos in the rock and roll scene. Why? Because so many of us were underage and they had very strict tattoo ID laws, you know? Like, exactly. like Joan Jett was the first person we knew that became old enough to get a tattoo, which I think it was 18, you know? And where, and where did she get the tattoo? She got, a little, uh, she got a little jet, like uh, on her hip, I think maybe. I know Cherie got cherries like on her hip. When I say on her hip, I really mean like, you know pussy adjacent but um. right 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 and that's like one of those i mean have you eat back then that even like tattoo placement was totally genderized and i remember like in even it was like the early 2000s when i first saw a woman with a forearm tattoo yeah like no you know like much less a hand tattoo like a woman with her either like her uh what is this part like the shoulder the upper shoulder or the forearm yeah. was yeah. almost unheard of we all got them like on our backs or ankles or hips, you know, like it was so, there were so many yeah. rules, so many boom, rules boom, to follow. Boom, boom. My, my drummer, she got, she got a giant fucking Bronco coming out of his nose 
like all on her shoulder when she got it. She got it from Bob Roberts. And I remember when I was there when she was getting it and she was yelling, yeah, yeah, I want steam coming out of its nose. Like it's really mad <laughs> with its head down. That's hilarious. And uh, Boom Boom was, in, was insane in a great way. Like, <laughs> like men were afraid of her because she would, she would just deck them. Do you have tattoos? Do I have tattoos? I, have <laughs> I know. I'm interviewing you now. Oh, what okay. was your first? What was your first? What was your first memory? My of a of tattoo. Your... My first tattoo I did on myself. It's a little kitty cat face that everyone thinks is Hello Kitty, but this was before Hello Kitty, or at least before it was in America, because I used to sign this after my name because KK from the Screamers during the 70s he, he started calling me Pleasant Puss, like Pussy Cat, like. So, um, I always had this little kitty, kitty sign. So I did it to myself on the floor of my pre-Disgraceland punk house while I was drinking tequila and watching Valley of the Dolls. I was poking it into my ankle jail style, you know, with India ink and a needle melted into a toothbrush. And then everyone else started asking for tattoos. And so, um, I tattooed a bunch of people that night. And there was one guy that I didn't really know that had just come over and he was so just really wasted drunk. And so I didn't tattoo him because I thought what he wanted, he might not want it in the morning. And the next day when everyone was looking at the tattoos, um, uh, you know, he was like, what did I get? What did I get? And they said, I didn't give you anything. And he got all indignant. Like, why not? <laughs> it was like, because you wanted a toaster with toast popping out of it on your arm. And he looked at me and immediately said, so I love appliances. And I was like, well, how would I have known that? That's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of mine were homemade as well, because we were talking about you didn't have access. You definitely couldn't get one if you're under 18. So that rite of passage had to do with that needle and ink. Yeah. Wait, so what was yours that you first inked on yourself? On my wrist, I got an FTW and Black Flag Bars, and it was performed by Stevie, the singer of Mad Society, at his mom's house. Oh, my God. <laughs> Over how by old? Okie Dog. Like 11? Uh, yeah, no, I, no. No, like probably 13. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Josh Lazy was there. I don't know if you remember Josh. Like, oh, that my God. crew. Wait, Mad Society, you guys, this was a band of like actual children, not just not just young people. <laughs> they were when did you start? They were like nine and ten and eleven, twelve. Yeah. They were yeah. minors. Definitely. Yeah. And they it was were, so funny they, because when I was 18, I wanted to get it covered up. So I went to um, Hanky Panky in Amsterdam on that first trip. And I got what I thought was an adult tattoo, which was like a professional cover-up. And then about 10 years ago, I missed the FTW and the black flag bars so bad, but I wanted a kid to be able to tattoo me. So I had to keep asking around to different friends who had kids that would let them do a home tattoo on me. And I actually did. I'm showing this. I got it put back on by a oh nine-year-old. I got tattooed by a nine-year-old 10 years ago. <laughs> that's so good. Um, There's a video of it on my Instagram somewhere back down the feed. Okay, you guys all have to cruise through Jennifer's Instagram because this tattoo <laughs> looks really great. I'm seeing it and you can't. Nah, 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 nah. Tattoo by a nine-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how I, about authors? 
what do you think that your exposure and being in Hollywood and being like a center where we could go see like, you know, William Burroughs doing signings at Beethoven Books or like at all these like great bookstores. Hubert Selby Jr., Charles Bukowski, all of that. Yep. Yeah, I have but, all of their autographs. I mean, I think it was a part of our scene that we had a really a connection to writing. Yeah, it's a total literary scene. And so many people don't even understand that now. They think like, you know, rock and roll or, or literature, one or the other, unless you're Patti Smith. I mean, but everyone in the olden days, like everyone had very similar frames of reference, even if, you know, even if we didn't know each other that much because reading was a thing, actual hard copy you know, hard copy, hardcover books were a thing. Let's take a little break and we will come right back and get more into this and other smart, punky things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so like we were talking about writing and literature and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, you, you write a lot, right? I don't write. You're you the don't? writer. You just, you just read a lot? I yeah, mean, I, I read. I mean, I don't, I don't as much now. I think I'm just part of the fallout of there's so much media right now that I don't actually just sit down and read, but I did read and it was really important. And one of the really, admirable part of the punk rock scene in Los Angeles was that effort to read and write. Yeah, I think everybody did it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago when we were when we were talking or, you know, pandemic brain. So maybe it was two weeks ago. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, we were talking about about scientists and being obsessed with science too. Do you remember that yes. conversation? Yes. Um, and then we we were talking about like like what a, that we were. I think both of us were looking at it as a subculture, kind of like punk rock, like awesome nerdy scientists, like having mm -hmm. you know having like um, discussions about stuff. And then we started talking about about witchy stuff too and I never knew that you were kind of like woo woo or witchy oriented I don't know why like you know but maybe none of maybe none of that stuff was on the radar like a few years ago I mean I mean not not in a trendy way but just like you know like we didn't right. a lot of people were just sort of like not necessarily in the broom closet but just like doing stuff quietly like on their own or just what do you think of all that stuff um, it's for me, I love culture. And I think that um, woo woo and witchy definitely like expresses culture. And it's, it's part of, you know, a feminine tradition that is subversive. 
And I love going back and kind of looking at different cultures and their stories around this kind of stuff. So I'm not actually woo-woo as in <clears throat> I'm going to cast a spell and get higher powers to really support me on it. But I do think that it's a great vehicle for, you know, looking at our lives where they are and being able to like create different thought patterns to have different kinds of successes or, or awarenesses or connections. I think that's that too, but I was just going to ask you about manifestation because, um, you know, I feel like that you, you have just like, literally manifested a lot what do you what do you think is like you know like a lot of your dreams have come true i'm sure like a lot of mine have and we've lived lives that are like really not ordinary to, to most people so what what are your thoughts on that kind of thing well i think growing up in an environment of traditional religious practices that i felt not included in and that didn't you know, they didn't resonate with me that, you know, being young and going to Pan's pipes and looking into kind of candle magic. And it makes one think about what you want to manifest and how you can create, uh, you know, various um, aspects, either material or spiritual in your own lives. And by placing focus I think is part of it. And then also creating connection, creating community in it. Because I think our worst enemy is our own thinking. At least for me, it is. So anything that I can do to subvert my own thinking is going to manifest something beyond my imagination. Do you mean, when you say that thinking, do you mean like, like, like negative thought patterns or like, like being sort of doubtful about your capabilities or what? what do yeah, you mean? that, yeah, of course, like anxieties, fears, old stories that don't even matter anymore. Like, how do you switch out, you know, your basic human protection patterns of being a teenager, but, and then, but coming forward into where you are now and what, you know, your challenges today, if that mm. makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, right? I think that witchcraft is genius at, um, well, I'll, I'm using that word loosely, okay? Like yeah, just yeah, for yeah. your listeners, um, is, is genius at that kind of self-awareness and self-reflection. Like, I don't think I can cast a spell on somebody and make them my slave, but I certainly could cast a spell and understand that maybe I don't really need them to be a slave, that I'm okay without them. Yeah. I mean, I think also that people that think that, you know, that want to do binding spells or, you know, they, they don't know what they're dealing with. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. why would you, why would you bind someone to you? That's your, your crush now or your love now. And then like, then you can't get rid of them for the rest of your life. Right. Exactly. So you have to start looking at that kind of stuff. And I think it's through that intuitive way of communicating that, we get to have those experiences. Yeah. And aren't you, aren't you um, that, what were you telling me um, about uh, that, that weren't, weren't you going to start having something about old um, Renaissance art or uh, like different sort of alchemy and magic? Weren't you going to do that? I am. Well, thank you for asking. It's still really in the development phase. So for anyone who's listening, this may or may not come to fruition, but I really want to do a podcast um, called The Art of Numbers and really look at great historic early civilization artwork and 
wind it into mathematics and culture and the kind of things that we talk about when we talk about numbers and the importance of numbers. Yeah, let's talk about it. What's your, um, what's your numerology? Do you know that? I don't. Oh my God. I know, I, right? I wasn't um, such a, you, um, if I wasn't such a dolt at math, I would do it right now for you, but maybe we can, maybe we can put it in the episode description of this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have suspicions and I know what it is. And I work with um, uh, one of my favorite all-time numerologists is Remington Donovan. And he does such great work in this area and has really changed lives. And um, so he's who I'm working on with this podcast. Because we're actually going to start looking at like, why are triptychs important? You know, why, why are certain things in the Bible important you know that they managed to survive for so long why is it so important that the number five is both in the names of you know sarah and abraham like that kind of stuff and i'm looking at that as uh, works of art i mean they're just works of art to me they're not like a you know framework around any religion that i practice but i just find it interesting yeah oh my god i mean i do too like and you know, like how I just said a few minutes ago, I flunked math, right? I fucking hated math because I used to be like, you know, or I hated, I, I hated it because I wasn't good at it. And then when, when algebra came along, I was completely, it was, the, that was the only class in high school I attended. Do you know what I mean? Because I wanted to understand it, but I'd be like, if X equals five and Y equals seven. And I was like, why don't you just fucking call it like the number? Why do you have to <laughs> like, you know, I'd be like, let's just cut, cut the shit and just like. Right, but, but what we're talking about are unknowns. That's what we're talking about, unknown. And that's like the basis of that kind of practice. No, I know that, but I didn't understand that in math, you know, but then as soon as like I found out about numerology, I went full on Rain Man, you know, like everything, mm -hmm. like I'd, I'd park in a parking space and do the numerology of it. Or, or, you know, like, is this a good day to book a show? And I'd like to, you know, all right. of that. Like I even, I, I, I go into it so crazy in tarot that sometimes when I'm talking to someone I'm reading for, I can't be like, like, wow, this person is like, you know, like all eights or something. Or once I did a reading where um, the client got like every 10 in the deck, you know, and then all the aces, you know? So I was just, I was trying to tell her about like the number one, um, you know, which is what 10 goes down to in numerology and um without without sounding completely like like dustin hoffman in the rain man <laughs> like right right like, like oh this yeah. is cool Instead of, yeah that was a tuesday there was a 10 here there was an eight that was in, in 1947 <laughs> like <laughs> right right i just did a linear algebra class because i like math and um we talked a lot like a part of that is probabilities like what are the probabilities of drawing all tens like if you have seven slots what how do you and all that kind of it was super fun yeah i mean i think i would be really into all of that now but um you know when i was younger like i was just like forget it i'm not good right, it didn't make any sense when i, I was professional. in <laughs> When I was in, I was, I was homeschooled through mo most of high school other than 12th grade. So I had this thing where you got to kind of pick your curriculum. So the first thing I did was I picked business math over doing regular math and was the best thing that ever happened because it was all applicable. Like everything was applicable. 
like how many, if you sell a t-shirt for $10 and you order 10 of them for $5, you know, it was like all of that kind of basic stuff. So all of a sudden math made sense and geometry made sense when we're dealing with it like that. And you guys lost, you know, in modern curriculums for math for kids. Our, um, our bassist, the science bassist, Laura Bennett, was a, as a, she was a professional accountant, and she would she would do pie charts at the end of our tours, you know, of, of what we need and stuff. But like always, and then sometimes she'd do bar graphs. But whenever she was doing bar graphs, she would draw penises. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, just so you could understand. Yes, <laughs> exactly. This penis is this long, but it's thin. So the volume, <laughs> length times circumference pi, yeah, exactly. he's not really a six. He's really a 16. Yeah. He's short and fat. I'm like, I know. Oh, my God. That's so good. The, <laughs> um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally switch gears here and ask you about when you were in um, the John Waters film Serial Mom. Mm-hmm. What did did you hang out with John Waters or did you? Um... You know, John Waters gives enough of himself that, that on a professional level, he's a very personal, private person. So he was very gracious with his time, and he hung out and he laughed, and but there were no phone numbers exchanged. But he makes <laughs> you feel like most people who are good at their job. He makes you feel like you're a personal friend. And since then, we've actually. Um, so it's 2021 when we're doing this interview. L7 started touring again in 2015. And I think it was like 2018, we actually did a show with John. We did a book signing. We did his birthday in Detroit and it was super fun. And he really has that mind where he is either sitting down with an assistant who's reminding him of any event with that person, or he has an incredible memory where he will kind of like remember events that happened. He's really yeah. good that way, you know, and ma- and still makes you feel very good about the relationship with him. I've I've never I've never met him, but I I worked with Mink Stoll. Um, she was my cellmate in the movie Stuck, and we started um, we st- <laughs> we started way before the um movie got made. We were texting to each other, just like you know, if there's bunk beds, which one of us should have the top you know, or, <laughs> or then I, I made a, a shank in the, um, you know, I made a shank out of a toothbrush on my driveway because I wanted it to be like in a prison cell with like rough concrete to make a shank. And I took a picture mm-hmm. of it on, I think it was, might've been a flip phone in those days <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe it was like a very early iPhone, but I sent her a picture of the shank and she's like, oh my God, I want a shank. And then, <laughs> and then called me immediately. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, what year do you think it was? Because 06 were the iPhone. No, it was probably an iPhone because this was like like 08. It was early iPhone, but like there was not nearly the amount of capacity on that phone and stuff. But, you mm-hmm. know, um, but I did I did um, record her saying, Pleasant, you're a whore, and, and changed that to my ringtone. Ah, <laughs> excellent. In, in the Maryland whore. accent. Yeah. Cool. And had you known her in LA? Because she had moved to LA, right? Wasn't she in LA? No, this was this was when she, she's in LA right now. I think I, I have to get her on the podcast. <laughs> Note to self. Um, mm-hmm. But this was uh, she was either living in New York or Maryland when we did stuck. So we were just you know talking oh, wow. about 
or cellmatey shit at that at that point. <laughs> nice, very good. What other movies have you been in? Oh my god, I've been in. Well, I was just talking about this last night with someone that um, almost any '80s rock and roll movie you've seen, I've been in it. You know, were you in? Let's try to figure out which ones we were both in. Were you in Get Crazy? Yes, I was in Get Crazy. Were you in Valley Girl? Uh, nope. That was a one second before my time, like just one year before I could work. I think Rock and Roll High School was way before you too. I was in Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. How about Cocaine and Blue Eyes with O.J. Simpson that was... No, I, wasn't, I was not in that. Wow. <laughs> um, that was filmed. Okay, help me remember. Janice Garza? Yeah, yeah. What was her club called? And it was, she did the whole, when there used to be the big whale that was on La Cienega and all those. No, that wasn't Janice Garza. That was, um, that was um, Janice, but Janice Garza was and is a writer. Hi, Janice. <laughs> um, Hi, Janice. Um, um, but, uh, it was White trash. Acid. White trash. But, Who did English yeah. Acid? I think, um, I think um, Ricky, um, what the fuck was his last name? The MTV DJ. Ricky Rockman, I think he did English Acid. And then Tammy Down had the, um, who had the Bordello? I don't know, this place, Osco's Disco started, like when it wasn't a disco anymore, K-Rock started doing shows at it and it was called the Cabaret. And they had great, like, this was still in the seventies. They would have bills of just like, what would now be called alternative bands, but mm -hmm. who all went on to become famous. Like it would be like the quick, opening for the motels who were opening for Van Halen and none of their music was similar, but it all made sense to us at the time, you know? Um, were you in any of the, the punk rock riots that were in Los Angeles, like Black Flag at the Whiskey or? I was, I was not in Black Flag at the Whiskey and um, the Elks Lodge, I wasn't at that famous one on St. Patrick's Day because it was my birthday and I was fucking my boyfriend at home, like drunk out of my mind. Uh -huh. um, which, which saved both of our pretty faces at the time too, I'm sure, because everyone got the crap beaten out of them at that one. Mm -hmm. um, but the, when, the, um, when my band, the Cyclones, the, the band that Jeffrey Lee Pierce made for me, um, were opening for the Go-Go's on the last at Gazzari's. Um, Jeffrey, started, I know, Jeffrey started a fist fight on stage because like, I was sort of sort of seeing the drummer, Brad Dunning, but not really. And we were all really jealous and mad at each other. So we weren't talking to each other. So we had to communicate through Jeffrey. Like, tell the drummer his timing's fucked up. Tell the singer, like, <laughs> you know, she, she's screwing up the song. But everyone in that band was all, that's why we only ever had one gig. We were, Jeffrey started a fist fight on stage. I think he punched the guitar player and then, People from the audience started joining in and I ran off the stage when there was amps starting to get thrown around by people. So that was that was like a riot in the middle of a set, but it turned into like, it looked like a movie bar brawl in a cowboy saloon for a while, except at a, at a heavy metal club <laughs> with punk bands. And so you were starting your own riots. Yeah, black people from Black Flag came to that show and they asked us to play with them at, um, I think it would have been at the Pollywog uh, Park gig because they thought we were so punk rock and crazy, but we were all just like, no, no, like, never play. <laughs>
so funny. I'd like to ask that question because, you know, then there were sort of in later the Depeche Mode riots on La Cienega. Yeah. And not many people remember that. So I'd like to talk about the progression of rioting in Los Angeles. <laughs> or rock and roll rioting, not like, not like wear a mask, like protest. <laughs> Just, just mayhem breaking out like all over the place. Were you at that? Um, were you at that butthole surfers gig at the Variety Arts Center where like the whole entire place was on hallucinogenics? I was. What are your memories of that? Well, back then, maybe a little bit before then, honestly. I mean, I was never a hallucinogens taker, and I have to ask you right now: Is my do it? Do I sound weird? No, but I wait. sound echoey. I sound echoey. Okay, I'm gonna move that. That's because you're hallucinating. No. <laughs> okay, wait for everyone that listens to this podcast. We're we're getting into the what is we're getting into the let's just yes the de rigueur acid and hallucinogenics part of the show. <laughs> like I just have to say, I was never much of an acid taker, just because my own sense of like self identity and stability was always a question. But I had no problem selling, which is kind of back to like how we talk about stuff as a minor. But I and your your business math. Yeah, my business math. Just I was able to understand that, like, instead of selling hits one at a time, I'd sell in bulk. And I created this product called Purple Fly. And basically, we just get the blotter sheets, and and in every blotter sheet could stamp six different purple flies, and would sell them in six hits at shows. So that show, Nervous Gender at the uh, Veterans Auditorium, all these different yeah. sort of psychedelic based shows, I was at. Yeah, but for that- business reasons. <laughs> yeah. I know. Like, is that on your LinkedIn bio? <laughs> well, it will be now. <laughs> All right, let's take a little tiny break. Scandalous. Sometimes doing these interviews like a little bit challenging because like you're right, it does. It is over time. But at the same time, you know, I did that. um, So I I did a lot of photography back then. And, you know, um, I had a show in 06. The body of work is called 14 and Shooting. And it's actually kind of a double meaning because I shot a lot of people doing drugs shooting up. And so we did this whole show that was like this 
you know, environmental experiment where I went into a location that was across from the cafe and kind of recreated the heptatic kind of experience of being young and seeing these larger than life characters and being kind of contained. So like, you know, you walk in and I have like scenes of fear um, and this gal who was getting raped in the pit. And I know that's <laughs> wrong, but you just, you're confronted immediately of like larger than life. And like, everyone's like, heft on bowls, DJ. But what I ended up doing was taking some like hardcore music that people didn't really know what it was. So like you have that dis feeling of being disoriented when you first go to a show and you're like young and everything is kind of exciting and dangerous at the same time. And we use like a lot of the environmental mazing of the basement of the building to show this work. And like, you know, I'd be there sitting around giving personal tours and this woman walked in with her daughter and she was like, I want my daughter to be just like you. And I was just like, <laughs> what, where am I going to put this information? You know, and I can, I can talk to a kid now. I could just say, look, you're going to develop, you're going to be exposed. You have to just develop your values really quick. We developed values really quick and we were exposed to a lot of very dangerous things and you have choices in your life. But I would just say, make the choice to not hurt yourself or other people. Just make that choice because I think that we had that value back then as best as we could, you know? Yeah, someone, someone else was talking to me about that kind of stuff. And it was someone else that's been like a long, long time rock and roll person and survivor, quote, quote, of the scene. And mm -hmm. um, we were talking about like, you know, doing all these absolutely crazy, insane things like you're describing or like I, you know, I talk about all the time, but there's, you know, the people, so many people, that we know have died through rock and roll, even if it was just like, you know, not not an OD, not a suicide, just like a, a crazy accident. But we were talking about the sort of crazy sense of um, like, what what if I do this, is this gonna kill me? Or like, or like, oh, maybe I shouldn't go to that party. Like just that kind of like knowing that, that mm -hmm, everyone mm -hmm. had that, that's sort of, you could call it street smarts, but it was just some kind of like, um knowledge and survival instinct you know like the knowledge mm -hmm. came from that yeah, absolutely because we've so, been in like crazy situations both of us i know constantly right 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 and i know that i don't know if this happens to you but i'll often get in situations where people will be dealing out some kind of like shaming or value system on like the parties that kids have today like in the hollywood hills at the influencers house and they're jumping off the roof and they're all drunk and they're not wearing masks and oh da, 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 da. and i'm like i have to excuse myself from those conversations <laughs> like i'm I, you know i have to say like i'm so sorry i i can't <laughs> i can't support or deny your value judgment on people because i <laughs> you know yeah my, my just look back and say you know yeah all this bad stuff happened and it was certainly risky but you know my life has been greatly improved by all of my experiences good and bad and you can't just tell people you can't yeah. tell a 19 year old how to live their life all you can do is give them some kind of character or value system and they have to go burn their hands on the stove themselves I that's guess. exactly true I, th I, I always say that, like, you know, if there was social media back in the day, 
um, we'd all still be incarcerated. If there was social media back in the day, I think it would be just about the same as it is today. That's what I I, no, that's, that's what I mean. But I mean, some of the stuff that we did that people are now getting like fired for or dropped from their right. company for, or or just like people are horrified and something goes viral because it's so absolutely insane. I mean, I remember like at you know, w- with Mike March, um, when he was living at the Land and a few other people, Mike Mart from Tux on the Horseheads, we used to like consciously wake up and go, How many laws are we gonna break today? You know, <laughs> like, like yeah. not like it was a contest or something, but like what you know, what are we gonna do? You know, like like that like you're in the middle of doing it and then suddenly it pops into your head, Oh, I am breaking the law and then oh well, you know what I mean? <laughs> Right. But even in more moral stuff, I mean, I know I came up thinking certain ways. And I think if like the mirror of society came up and said like, well, maybe you shouldn't use that word to describe people's intelligence or use that word to describe people's ethnicity, where it was just kind of normalized. I mean, I'm not talking about the most severe cases, but the subtle ones that we don't even think about. Like, I wonder, you know, if we did have social media, maybe we would have like kicked into gear a little bit more on having conversations around that stuff yeah possibly maybe you know like hopefully we are at this point having some kind of positive influence but I mean I'm from LA so we had a microcosm right we had a protection here people showed up to punk rock in all different forms and shapes and sizes and all kinds of different stuff and never thought about it really you know about any kind of exclusion or whatever yeah that's that's totally you know. true. We had a really good, um, mostly inclusive scene, you know. And then um, the 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 one, you know, the one thing I was talking about this with somebody somebody that lives in France last night. We were talking about um, like how 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 punk rock when younger people like that that didn't grow up in it or and you know people that weren't even born when when you and I were doing crazy things or, or previous to that, you know, um, a lot of people see it as very, very masculine and male, but that was because they didn't experience the super early punk scene. And then when they found out about bands like L7 or Babes in Toyland, or, you know, when Courtney Love came along with Hall and, and, you know, I was having the sirens, we were, it was sort you know, or even Kathleen Hanna, it was all sort of like, a um, you know, wow, this is like girls doing it, but girls were doing it a lot in the early scene. You know, like I remember I was kind of like, I wasn't outraged at Riot Girls, but I was outraged at like, I mean, I thought that was a great concept, but the way that the press was treating it, like this was some new, wonderful, weird thing. I was just like, where were you like 15 years ago? (laughs) You know, like it wasn't even on their radar, you know? Right. I mean, that's going to be also the difference between having um, a scene that works outside of mainstream media, because mainstream media was what was finding that. I mean, L7 was up against that all the time. Like we were just like, we grew up in a scene where women were promoters, women were writers, women were photographers, women were performers, they were club owners, they were record label owners. So it wasn't, uh, you know, we kind of like, it was very shocking to actually go into the mainstream media and think, Oh yeah, there, there, there is no women here. There isn't not one one in the mainstream. You know, up into the ma- writers and publishers. Yeah, that point. You know, that's yeah. where they were. Um, so I mean, when you know C- Kathleen Hanna 
made the cover of Time magazine as part of this third wave feminist movement, I could really see why that was very specific. You know, they were part of a, a, they were going, uh, like they were just, you know, they went to college. They were women that went to college and that their band came out of like an academic environment. So they were absolutely qualified, I think, to go and be able to speak to that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Also, like right around the same time, maybe I'm getting my years wrong, was like Sassy Magazine had just started, you know? Yeah, Sassy. Did you like Sassy? I have many, many controversial (laughs) and embarrassing (laughs) moments with Sassy. Sassy, literally almost to this day, probably at least up until 10 years ago, would make my skin crawl if you said that name. I, I, I was like sort of, I was like fascinated by it, but really um, sort of repelled by it a lot. I was, I, I thought it was really cool what it was doing, but then I would just look at it sometimes and it, it seemed like, this is going to sound so dumb. It seems like, like an Etsy hipster or someone that, that does right, like right, right. occulty things, but tries not to call it a cult, like by putting like really clean modern tarot cards on a sheepskin with like some really beautiful new like candles that don't look scary. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right. So what Sassy Magazine was doing was kind of um, being this like 1990s mainstream, you know, counterpart to teen culture. And yeah. the idea was they were supposedly giving like teen girls, like a little bit more expansion on self-identity, which all they did was reinforce other stereotypes, in my opinion. And I uh, criticized them for it moving forward. I was just like, you can't call yourself an alternative magazine when you're just like reinforcing like the magical girl or like, yeah, the Etsy girl or the DIY girl, like all of these very safe feminine stereotypes, right? So (laughs) one day they called me up and they were doing this article like, what's your most embarrassing moment? Like the thing that was really your life changing in embarrassing moment so like I got on the line with the thing and and I was like look like this really life-changing moment for me was I had a boyfriend that I totally adored I was in a relationship with him he wasn't in the same relationship with me and he accidentally murdered somebody and I had to go to trial as a minor uh, in his defense and I wasn't sure if that and he it was a gay bashing and at that moment in my life, I had to identify that the scene that I was in was homophobic and it was wrong and it changed my life. And, wow. and there was this pause. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this pause. And the writer goes, Well, no, I mean, like, if you were in a play and you got your period. I was just going to say, I was like, was a period not, That does not face me, motherfucker. I will free bleed <laughs> over your fucking face, you dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was so upset. And then, so, so that happened and they didn't run it, of course. And I got this reputation and I was just like, what the fuck? You know, they're trying to do this free speech up. So in an interview, I have a famous quote where I, where someone asked me about Sassy Magazine and I say, it's for women in their thirties who think that they're women in their twenties who want to be teenagers. And <laughs> fucking they got so bummed l7 no more coverage no more (laughs) oh my god no i'm just basically 
Basically, you bled all over their faces. Bled all fre blood, fre bled. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. But you know what? It was just the times. Like those were just the times. I don't blame anybody for anything. That's how it was. But I don't think Sassy should ever be held up as like a third wave feminist publication for sure. Sorry, Sassy. And fuck. Oh, you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> wow let's see i don't even know how long we've been talking for but it's <laughs> i hope the zoom meeting doesn't run out no um is there anything else that you want to discuss or discourse on we've covered so many things here. i know i would I, you know, you? I, really, I want to thank you i want to thank you for being amazing and i want to thank you for being a trailblazer and i want to thank you for creating all of these containers for other people to like tell their story and for you to tell your story i think it's really important you're gonna make me cry now thank I, you that's my, that's my magic power <laughs> bleed all over my face that's <laughs> the spell of crying yeah i think our stories are all of our stories are important i do i love everyone's stories uh, everyone that I know has like such amazing lives. I mean, it's like, I do you ever, okay, I, like in conclusion, I'm just gonna tell you, like almost every day I sit around and think of like all of my close friends and so many of the people in my social sphere are so talented that I just sit at my kitchen table and get all teary eyed. Mm. Does anything like that ever happen to you? Like that don't you like feel lucky for knowing like so many people that are just amazing yeah i have gratitude every day for all of the people in my life in all the different ways like in and out of this scene and i mean there's so many other experiences that people have had in america um as far as how they experienced the 70s and the 80s and what they've gone through and i uh, just uh, you know i'm astounded by humanity because it gets frustrating sometimes and then other times i remember how amazing it is yeah that's 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 very much the same mm -hmm, definitely so do we get to talk about like what kind of sound bites and songs and bumps and all that kind of stuff we're going to use um we can talk about it or we can talk about it off air yeah let's do it off air <laughs> or, or let's do bumps together sometime in the in the future when <laughs> we're bumping wow it's just like 1983 all over again <laughs> bumping. oh my god all right well i mean you should come on again we i don't i don't i could talk to you forever oh well off. thank you so much um yay okay i so always feel high. like i'm boring so thank you what for are, you, are you high <laughs> are you having a flashback of oh my god i hope i every time, every time i lose weight i hallucinate for four days <laughs> what for real no <laughs> <laughs> every time i lose brain cells i wish i could regenerate them no <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um one you know um one i think would be like a good bump would be maybe um um like bukowski or burroughs reading oh that would be good like your choice um i i would love to do you reading 
Oh, you want to hear like a little, you mean for, for the end of this episode that we're still recording? Yeah. Oh, don't you do little bumps going in and out of your yeah, segments? Totally. totally. Yeah. I would love to hear little bumps or maybe like a Patty Smith since we mentioned her. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Let's, let's do a Patty yeah. Smith for this. You guys that are hearing this have no say in this. So me and Jennifer are figuring it out right now in front of you. Yay. I'd love to hear some bulimia banquet or bobsled just because I think that Jula Bell is one of those people that stayed so hardcore outside of the mainstream that she's kind of getting forgotten about as an artist. I Not love forgotten Jula about, Bell. but pardon? I said, I love her. Also animal rescue and, and yeah, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. You should talk to her. She has great stories. I will talk to her. She's got fantastic stories. <laughs> I have a good story with her. We were, we we walked into a strip club together. I think it was Cheetahs, and I think yeah. she, I think she might have never been to a strip club before. Probably, <laughs> um, yeah. But so the first thing we saw as we walked in was this girl cocking her head, <laughs> like it was one of the dancers working. She cocked her head and she's like, um, like where's my stones tape? <laughs> <laughs> when you okay, so when you were like in the in the. I don't know, up until, when did you start driving? When I know we're just going to keep going. I started driving when I was, um, you know, in high school after driver's ed, but I flunked my first driver's test because for some reason I thought it would be a good idea to take a quaalude before it. And I couldn't even get the car out of park in the, in the DMV driveway, yeah. in the driveway of the DMV in Hollywood. I couldn't figure out how to get it out of park. because I, was I so get it. Happy. I get it. Same experience. So my experience has always been this, like, there's someone who's the designated driver in your crew, and there's yeah. someone who's the most problematic, effed up person in your crew. And then yeah. all of us kind of stand in between all of that. I love going back and thinking who consistently has been the driver. And I'm just going to say Jula Bell has always been that person. Like, we'll just be <laughs> fucked up at a Chili Peppers show, like at Annie Club, just like in that backyard at the Annie Club. Yeah, and yeah. she'll just be like, are you guys ready to go? Do you need water? <laughs> I just feel like, oh my God, she's always been the responsible one. That's really good. That's I'm always all about the water, but you know, sometimes like when I when I'm trying to mention it at those times, like it just comes out like um unintelligible. Thing. What did you say? Blech. Yeah. yeah. So I have a business proposition for you. What? <laughs> I don't know if it's real. I think that when COVID is over, we should get an old car uh -huh. and we should do highlight Hollywood punk rock locations and just go to those, take people on tour and do those locations and then record it and it could be little blips of recording, like a tour guide. Cause I really want to do one to, of the- I've been wanting to do an app like that for years. <laughs> okay, don't talk about it. <laughs> don't talk about Cut it. Cut that out. <laughs> okay, Come we're on. doing this, it's on record. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> all right, doll. so um, as they say in Louis, at the end of Louie Louie, we gotta go. <laughs> we gotta go.
I'm gonna I'm gonna outro you first though. Oh, you see absolutely. how well we you see how well we planned this out. <laughs> this was <laughs> the fabulous goddess Jennifer Finch, and she is leaving the building. <laughs> I'm out on a cloud of my own gas. <laughs> Bye. I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye Podcast land. <laughs> The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. <laughs>